0: The reading is Judges 3, 7 through 11. Judges 3, starting in verse 7. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Ashereth. Therefore the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel and he sold them into the hand of Cushan Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia. And the people of Israel served Cushan Rishathaim eight years. But when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the people of Israel who saved them Othniel, the son of Kanaz, Caleb's younger brother. The Spirit of the Lord was upon him. And he judged Israel. He went out to war, and the Lord gave Kushan Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia, into his hand. and his hand prevailed over Kushan, Rishathaim, so the land had rest 40 years. Then Othniel, the son of Kanaz, died.
1: Let's go before the Lord and ask for his help. My father, you know the story well of the young man who walked into a little church in England 150 years ago or so. There's only like 15 people at church that Sunday. The pastor stood up and spoke a powerful word from Isaiah. Lord, he preached like the church was filled with a thousand people. And you powerfully used that word from Isaiah that day to save Charles Haddon Spurgeon and to call him into ministry. And you used that man, Lord, to preach the Word of God to England, and in, in, in many ways you shaped the course of the history of England in the late 18th century, and you have equipped, without exaggeration, millions of people through his preaching and teaching and writing. And Lord, I, as I heard that story last night, I just felt filled with faith to know that even though Glory of Christ is a small church, in a suburban town in the Twin Cities, Lord, that you can do great and powerful things. You don't see with the eyes of men, you see with the eyes that are in you. And so I pray that we would worship you today by faith, Lord. I pray that we would not think as men and women think. I pray that we would not see what we tend to see, but that we would see as the Spirit sees. And I pray that you would powerfully use your word today to shape the lives of your people, I pray that you would use your word today to save people from the clutches of Satan and of death. I pray that you would use your word to build us up who believe and to transfer those who do not believe from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. Lord, eternal things could happen here this morning. And I pray that we would believe that and see that and give ourselves to that. And so I thank you, Father, because the heavy lifting here is on your shoulders As I said before the service, we've done all the preparation, we've done the prayer. Now only you can come and transform hearts, and Jesus, I pray that you would do that. Please help us, Lord, to pay careful attention to your word, and use me now, Father, I pray, to express the things you want to express in the way that you want to express it. I surrender myself to you, I surrender my notes to you, I surrender this time to you, and give you thanks for what you'll do in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. The book of Judges was likely written in the days of King David when he was ruling over Israel. The judges themselves had passed off of the scene about a generation before, but as David rose to power, this book was developed, and it's a certainty that David read this book along with Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Judges, or Joshua, and probably the book of Job as well. And if David was anything, He was a man who loved the law of the Lord. He delighted in the Word of God. He read the Bible often and well. He cherished the Bible deeply. And he understood, probably more than anyone else besides Jesus, the fundamental message of the Bible. At some point in his life, as he was reflecting on the will and ways of God, as he was delighting in the heart of God, He penned the words of Psalm 100, which we'll be memorizing together here in a few weeks as as a church. And David, I think out of an overflow of praise from what he saw in the first several books of the Bible, he wrote these words. He said, make a joyful noise to the Lord all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us and we are his We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. So come into his gates with thanksgiving. Come into his courts with praise. Give thanks to him and bless his name. And David, why is it that we should come into the presence of God with such exuberant joy? Why is it, David, that we should come into the presence of God filled with thanksgiving for God? Well, David answers in the last lines of Psalm 100 when he says, For the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever, his faithfulness to all generations. Beloved, this truth is the foundation of life. It's the only rock in this life, actually. And this truth is what inspired David to write so passionately about the things that he believed about God. The main reason that David knew that God is eternally steadfast in love and faithful to his promises is because he gave himself to the word of God. He read it and memorized it and meditated upon it and did what he could to live by it. He spent a lot of time thinking about the stories that we're going to be thinking about over the next 11 weeks. And I just want us to see that through these words, God set his heart on fire. David would not have put the truth in these words, but he did know this truth very well. Because God is faithful, his covenant is unbreakable. Beloved, that is the rock of this life. Nothing else outside of us and nothing inside of us will serve to be a rock in life, but this is a rock. Because God is faithful, his covenant is unbreakable. This is the thing that caused David to overflow And call upon the entire planet to overflow with praise to God. Make a joyful noise to the Lord who? All the earth. The entire earth. Why? Dot, dot, dot. For the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever. His faithfulness to all generations. Oh, I pray that God will teach us these things well and deeply in our hearts. I pray that we'll keep Psalm 100 in mind as we consider the lives of the judges of Israel over the next few weeks and remember that David knew these stories well and remember that God used these stories to light his heart on fire. That's what I've been praying for us, beloved. That we would not just take a journey through another book of the Bible, but that God would use his word to display his character and set our hearts and our lives on fire, that we might love him and serve him with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength. And I invite you to pray in this way with me. Don't think small things about what God could do through his word, but pray big things. Now, as I mentioned last week, the word judge simply means a, a leader or a ruler. And it was a title that was broadly used in that day among various peoples to refer to people who wielded political or military or judicial power. The book of Judges then tells us the the stories of exactly 12 judges who judged Israel. And if you were to add up their various ministries back to back to back, you would come to the conclusion that they served in Israel over a period of about 410 years. But in fact, the way that it happens in the book of Judges is that some of the stories that we'll be considering over the next 11 weeks are actually happening concurrently. So you'll have one judge serving in the north and one judge serving in the south, so they kind of overlap a little bit. And what you end up having is 12 judges who serve Israel over a period of 150 years, from the days of Joshua to the days when God raised up Samuel. So to put that in the context of our culture, it's like these 12 judges served from the days of the Civil War up until our day, from the 1860s up until the 2010s, something like that. And with this in mind, let's turn our attention today to the first three judges of Israel, Othniel, Ehud, and one of my favorites, just because his name is kind of cool, Shamgar. Isn't that an awesome name? Hey, I'm Charlie. How's it going? I'm Shamgar. Just sounds like a cool name. The setup for the life of Othniel, you can see there in verse 7, is this. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, meaning that they again forgot the Lord and forsook the Lord and betrayed the Lord and began to worship and serve other gods. They committed adultery against God. They were so quick to turn their back on God, beloved. They were so quick to pursue other lovers. And this rightfully and righteously outraged God, and so in his anger, he was kindled against Israel. And This was not a sudden, explosive, out-of-control, unexpected kind of anger, as I said last week, but rather it was the natural reaction of anyone when they had been severely and repeatedly betrayed by somebody else. In fact, do you know that the reason you feel such anger and hurt when you're betrayed by people is because you were made in the image of God, And the strength and and goodness of your feelings of betrayal are just the smallest glimpse of what God feels in his heart when he is betrayed by his people. And so, just as he had warned Israel for one decade after another, after another, after another, in response to their betrayal, he handed them over to one of the kings whose gods they had come to worship. God delivered them into the hands of the things that they loved more than God, and in this way they became subject to a king who reigned from the northeast part of Israel, so kind of near where Syria and Iraq are today, and he reigned over them for about eight years. We don't know much about this king, Jesse. I appreciate you having to pronounce his name over and over and over again, but I'll tell you what his name means. His name means Kushan of Double Evil. So, this was not a nice man. This was a man who ruled fiercely and with an iron fist. And evidently, he caused the people of Israel to suffer greatly because finally, after eight years, they hit rock bottom and they turned back toward the Lord and they cried out to God and asked Him to save them. And isn't that just like us human beings? Don't you see this pattern in yourself? You walk away from God and you give your things to you give yourself to things other than God, and eventually those things that gave you temporary pleasure come to sting you and disappoint you, and and there you are at the bottom of the barrel at the end of your rope. There you are hitting absolute rock bottom and all you know to do is turn back to God and say, God, please get me out of this. That's what Israel did. The Lord was under no obligation whatsoever to help his people to respond to the cries of his people. He would have been perfectly just to divorce or destroy them at this point. But the Lord is gracious and merciful. He is steadfast in love and faithful all the way to the end. And so when he heard the cries of Israel, his heart went out to them, and he raised up a deliverer for them who saved them out of the hands of their enemies. What an amazing God. What a gracious God. The deliverer's name was Othniel. And he was the younger brother of Caleb, that great man of faith who had loved and served and worshipped the Lord his God all the days of his life. And just like his older brother, Othniel served the Lord wholeheartedly and gave himself to the Lord and the Lord put his spirit upon him. And so when Othniel went out to make war against this very powerful and evil king, he was actually able to prevail against him. This king had subjected Israel for eight solid years. And just like that, because the Spirit of the Lord came upon one man, they were able to finally get deliverance. And beloved, make no mistake about it, Othniel prevailed not by might nor by power, but by the power of the Spirit of God. Othniel did not win his victory by human techniques or technology. He did not win his victory by the size or the strength of his army. Othniel was the instrument of deliverance but God is the one who provided the deliverance and so he won the victory because God gave him the victory. Othniel was a a manifestation of the mercy of God but understand that it was the merciful heart of God that heard the cries of his people who did not deserve deliverance but God was moved in mercy and delivered his people for the glory of his name. This is a story, beloved, of a God who is forever steadfast and faithful. This is not primarily about a man. When God makes a promise, he keeps it all the way to the ends. When God enters into a covenant, he honors that covenant forever and ever. Indeed, because God is faithful, his covenant is unbreakable. This was the hope of Israel, and it's the hope of our lives as well. Now you'll see at the end of this story, that the result of this deliverance for Israel was that the land had rest for 40 years, which is to say an entire generation. By the time we get to the judges, this word rest already has a very rich history because it refers back to the promises that God had made to Abraham and to his descendants. He told them that he would bring them into a land and that he would give them political and military rest from their enemies all around. And he was going to do that for a particular purpose, which is really the deeper meaning of rest. He was going to keep them from warring against other enemies so that they could love and serve and worship the Lord their God with all of their heart and soul and mind and strength. So at one level, beloved, God's rest means to to be free from war. But at a deeper level, God's rest means to be in communion with God. It means to enter into God's peace and be at peace with God. It means to be one with God. It means to come into the fullness of that great and historic promise where God said to Israel, I will be your God and you will be my people. So again, when you think rest, you should think military peace, but more profoundly, you should think worship. You should think communion with God. And, God. and the people of Israel enjoyed this kind of communion with God for about 40 years, for about a full generation. But then Othniel, the great man of faith, died, and the people of Israel, unfortunately, fell back into sin. Now, before we look at what happened next, I want to pause here and summarize something for you that's usually called the sin cycle or the cycle of sin or, or something like that. This is a four-part pattern that repeats over and over again in the book of Judges and will both help us understand what's happening in Judges, but also it will help us to diagnose our, our own hearts. So let me just summarize this cycle for you and then we'll continue on in the story. Stage one of the cycle is called sin. And this refers to the times when Israel would forget the Lord and turn away from him and betray him by giving themselves to other gods. We do the same thing, but in different ways. Stage two is called subjection. And this refers to the times when the Lord in his righteous anger would hand his people over to their enemies. He would cause them to be subjected to the things that they loved more than God. He would cause them to be conquered by those things which they were supposed to conquer for the glory of his name and the good of their own souls and the blessing of the earth. Stage three then is called supplication. And this refers to those times when Israel would finally reach the bottom of the barrel. How many ever years that took. And they would turn to God and cry out to Him for deliverance. Completely unworthy, but they had nowhere else to go. So they would turn back to God and cry out to Him. And then stage four we call salvation. And this is where the Lord, out of nothing more than the goodness of His heart, would listen to the cries of His people and seek to deliver them, though they were unworthy. So we can summarize the sin uh, cycle in four words. I've put them all in S's so that it would help you to remember them. It's sin, subjection, supplication, and salvation. I urge you to commit this to memory in some way or another and keep it in mind as we go throughout Judges because as I said, this cycle will help us understand what's happening in this book and it will help us to diagnose our, our own hearts and our own lives before the Lord. Now let's get back to the story You'll see there in verse 12 that Othniel has died and after 40 years of freedom, Israel again falls into sin. Verse 12 says that Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And this surely means that they forgot God. They drifted away from the Lord. I doubt that this was a real quick turning away from God. It was probably one small compromise after another, one small compromise after another, and pretty soon they found themselves off in left field where they had forsaken God and given themselves to other things, and they, they stirred the anger of God up again to, to their, their harm. So you'll see there uh, around verse 12 or 13 that God in his anger stirred up Moab against Israel and Moab gathered some allies and they came against Israel and they successfully conquered them. Moab and its allies, if you have a a map in the back of your Bibles, you can look at this later, and you'll see that Moab lived to the east of Israel across the Jordan. So when they gathered their allies and came against Israel, they probably began by conquering the tribes that lived on that side of the Jordan, and then the Bible says that they crossed the Jordan and conquered the city of Palms, which is the famous city of Jericho. And so it's as if the Lord is saying, listen to me, Israel— I brought you into this very land, by this very path, many, many years ago. And if you want to keep playing this deadly game of turning against me and turning toward other gods, even though I have promised you that I want to bless you beyond what you can imagine, and I have warned you that if you turn from me, I will have to punish you because I loved you, If you want to keep playing this deadly game, I'm going to bring enemies in from the very path where you entered into the promised land and I'm going to take everything away from you. I've warned you before and I will warn you again. I will vomit you out of this land if you do not follow me and love me and listen to me and obey me. Now, I'm reading a lot of that into the text, but I'm getting that from other parts of the Pentateuch because I see a lot of symbolic meaning in the fact that God handed them over to deliverers who took the very routes, retook the very route where Israel entered into the Promised Land. And there they were subject to the king of Moab. His name was Eglon for some 18 years. 18 years. Think about that. Half a generation passes by before Israel has finally had enough. But when they had finally had enough, they turned to the Lord and they cried out to him and they asked him for deliverance. When they found out that the gods they worshipped were false gods and could not provide for their deepest needs, they turned to the one true God and said, Lord, we have no reason for you to deliver us. You have no reason for you to deliver us, but we call upon you nonetheless because we have nowhere else to go. And God again, beloved He could have divorced or destroyed his people right here and been fully justified, but he's a God of great mercy, and so he heard their cries, and he sent another deliverer to save them. His name was Ehud. This man came from the tribe of Benjamin, and that tribe had settled in the area where Jerusalem and Jericho were, and for whatever reason, the Bible wants us to know that he was left-handed. Now my wife here is also a lefty, so she probably thinks that it's because lefties are awesome. That's probably what is going through her head. But I think that there's another reason. The time had come for Israel to give tribute to King Eglon. They were to bring money, they were to bring many goods, and it would have taken a whole train of people and lots and lots of servants to get the tribute to him. And so Ehud was sent to lead out the train of tribute, and he came into, uh, into Moab. And having known that he was going to get access to the presence of the king, he made himself a little small two-edged dagger and he strapped it to his right thigh. And I think that little detail matters because in my imagination, when he went to go into the presence of the king, the king's attendants probably searched him for weapons where they thought he would have a weapon. Most people are right-handed, so they would have had a, 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 a sword strapped to their right thigh, their left thigh, so that they could grab it like this. But he was left-handed, so he put his weapon in a place they didn't expect. And in this way, he got into the presence of this evil and powerful king with a deadly weapon on him. Now the rest of the story is not for the faint of heart, and it's not for those who do not have a sense of humor. After Ehud finished presenting the tribute to the king, Ehud sent the Israelite servants away, and then he asked King Eglon for a private audience with him so that it would just be the two of them. And Eglon actually granted this and sent his own servants away, so now it was just Ehud and King Eglon here in a room alone, which probably would have been a very rare thing. In my mind, the reason that he granted this is probably because the tribute was particularly large, and he was probably pulling on King Eglon's greed strings, and probably King Eglon thought he had something even more to give to him. So now here they are alone, and Ehud looks at him and says, King I have a word from God for you. So Eglon the king gets up from his throne. He's a big fat man because he's indulged himself on the tributes of Israel. And as he stands up and leans in toward Ehud, just at the right time Ehud grabs his dagger and stuffs it into the belly of the king and he stuffs it in so deep that the Bible says his fat covered it up so that you couldn't even see the knife anymore and it caused all of his dung to fall out onto the floor and Eglon fell and died right there. Now these are not just grotesque details that we could really do without. Rather, these little parts of the story are integral to the story because when the king fell on the ground, Ehud was able to escape out the window and he closed the doors of the chamber and locked them and and he started heading back to Israel where he could gather troops to come back and fight against Moab. While he is escaping... The king's servants are sitting outside waiting for the meeting to come over. They come a little bit closer to the room where they were meeting and two things happen. First of all, they notice that the chamber doors are locked and, sorry to be crude, but they could smell the smell of his dung so they thought that he was relieving himself. And so they waited and waited and waited. And while they waited, Ehud got away. And Ehud was able to get to his people and gather the troops. And the Bible says that, that the king's attendants waited so long that they waited to the point of embarrassment. They're like, holy smokes, this guy's really got to go, right? And at some point, it's like, this is ridiculous. We're going in there. They take their key, they open it up, and there is their king, the great King Eglon, who had reigned for so long, sitting there on the ground, nothing more now than a pile of dung, dead because the faithfulness of God had delivered his people. With that, Ehud made it back to his hometown, and he blew the trumpet and gathered the troops, and he shouted these words, follow after me, why? For the Lord has given your enemies the Moabites into your hands. Please notice that Ehud gave the glory to God, beloved. The reason Israel was delivered is because God is merciful, period and end of story. And God did strengthen his people, and they went against another people who had subjected them and treated them horribly. And by the faithfulness of God, they were able to overcome they were able now to rule over those that God had originally called upon them to rule over. And this time, you'll see there that the, that the land had rest for a double portion. The land had rest for 80 years, or two entire generations. So here we see it again. Sin, subjection, supplication, and salvation. This, re- this cycle is repeated for a second time, mainly to show us that God is faithful. It doesn't seem to matter to God how repeatedly unfaithful his people are. He simply will not break his promises. Because God is faithful, his covenant is unbreakable. Beloved, this was the rock for Israel, and it's the rock for our lives as well. This brings us to the last judge for the day. His name was Shamgar. He was the third judge of Israel, and here's all that we know about him. Verse 31. After him, that is after Ehud, was Shamgar, the son of Anath, who killed 600 of the Philistines with an ox goad, and he also saved Israel. So we know that this man's name was Shamgar. We know that his father's name was Anath, which doesn't mean anything to us. But if you were living in Israel in those days, that would have been enough information for you to go check out his genealogy, and you could have learned more about him and who he was and where he came from. We know that by the power of God, he killed 600 Philistines with an ox goad, which is a little tool that shepherds would use to to, um, prod oxes along. So it it would be kind of like a long wooden staff with a very sharp point at the end, and then in the middle there was a sort of circular gathering of chains that the shepherd could sometimes use to turn to the side and smack the livestock rather than poke them. And somehow Shamgar used this little shepherd's rod to kill 600 Philistines and win uh, freedom for Israel from people who had subjected them for a very long time. Now, even though we're not told much about this man, we can fill in the details of what happened here. And you know why? It's because we know the cycle by now. And by now you can read into the story because God is trying to tell you the same story over and over again to prove his faithfulness. So we can assume that Israel again did what was evil in the eyes of the Lord and fell into sin and worshipped other gods. We can assume again that God gave them in subjection to the Philistine people who lived on the western part of Israel by the Mediterranean Sea. We can assume that after a number of years of subjection, Israel cried out to the Lord and asked him for deliverance and then God was moved to his heart because he is compassionate and merciful and he sent Shamgar to deliver them from enemies that were far, far too powerful for them. The the moral of verse 31 is the same as every other story. Because God is faithful, his covenant is unbreakable. If you'll turn back with me to chapter two, verse one, I just want you to see it again with your eyes something that God had said there that I believe is the theme of the book of Judges and one of the main themes of the whole Bible. These are words he had spoken before and now he was repeating to Israel. He simply said this, I will never break my covenant with you. I don't know how to put into words how deeply and strongly I feel the import, the impact, the implication of those words and I pray that you'll meditate on them carefully. The Lord really meant what he said, beloved. And I think that the story of the book of Judges is simply to prove that God is faithful. It's one thing to say that you're faithful, right? But it's another thing to show that you're faithful. The father of your family could tell your family, I'm faithful to you. Okay, those are words. They're important. But what he really needs to do is show you that he's faithful to you. And usually when that is shown is when times are hard, when times are bad, when it would be easy for him to turn his back on the family and leave and the father stays no matter what. Then you know that the father's faithful. And that's what God is trying to teach us. And I think he wants us to receive it very, very deeply. Because he is faithful, his covenant is unbreakable. I'm telling you, if you'll build your life on this fact, your life will be built upon a rock that no storm, no trial, no tribulation can ultimately shake and I pray that God will help us with this I want to take a few minutes now and apply all of these stories to our lives here in 2014 and the first thing that I want to say is that the story we have just considered in the cycle we have just seen is not just the story of another people in another time but beloved this is the story of us this is our hearts This is an accurate diagnosis of our own hearts and habits before God. Thinking deeply about the book of Judges is kind of like getting a spiritual MRI. It helps you to see past the surface of things. It helps you to see past the masks that we wear and the games that we play, the things that we like others to believe, the things that we fooled ourselves into believing. And it helps you to see the actual truth about the heart of your heart. And as we look into the heart of our hearts, I think we need to see and confess that the news is not good news. I'll tell you, that's true for this heart of mine. The news is not good news. We, like Israel, have spiritual cancer, and it's very widespread, and it's deep, and it's deadly. And if you were to look through the lenses that God has to see, then you would see the cancer plainly. We, like Israel, are prone to wander away from God and give ourselves to many things that in the short term satisfy us, but in the long term come back to bite us and disappoint us. We, like Israel, are prone to worship other gods, even though we do it in other ways, right? We don't go down to the corner store and buy little idols and then bow down and worship them, but we give ourselves to all kinds of other things other than God in a way of avoiding God and in a way of turning and saying, God, I can actually find better satisfaction over here rather than in you. And when we turn from God like this, beloved, we have to see that as it was in the book of Judges, God takes us as a personal betrayal. This is not just a matter of us breaking his rules This is a matter of us breaking his heart. God created us to worship him. And when we forget him and turn our back on him and give ourselves to other things, then we become as vile and guilty as Israel. And I do believe that sometimes this is why we suffer from certain kinds of difficulties. I do believe that God still in his loving faithfulness causes people to become subject to the things that they love more than him. I do believe that in his faithfulness, he still causes us at times to be conquered by what he meant for us to conquer. And he does this not to be cruel. He does this to drive us to the place where we taste the bitterness of our ways and finally, no matter how long it takes, finally turn back to God and say, all right, I've had enough. There's no one else but you. I turn to you. God, please, please, please deliver me. Beloved, Just like Israel, every single one of us is hopelessly lost in the cycle of sin and we desperately need a Savior. Believe me, this is true of our lives. We are hopelessly caught in the cycle of sin and we desperately need a Savior. We need someone to deliver us from our enemies that are too powerful for us. We need someone to escort us into the rest of God. But the the piercing question of life is this, who will deliver us? Who will save us and who will do it in a way that we are delivered forever? And getting closer to the point, who will save us from ourselves? Who will save us from this wicked heart that causes us to be subject to powers that are too great for us? One of the purposes of the lives of the judges is to be a living prophecy of the one who would come and deliver all who believe in him. Each of the judges of Israel was used by God for a season And they won notable victories for the people of God, after which they entered into God's rest for a period of time. But then you have already seen that in a short period of time, boom, they were right back to the bottom of the hole that God had just dug them out of. And so Israel needed a greater Savior, and so do we. When the time was full and the great purposes of God for the history of the world were ready to come to pass, God raised up another judge and he sent him to save his people. And that judge's name is Jesus Christ. Like the judges of Israel, Jesus was sent out to this earth out of the overflow of the compassionate heart to God in in response to the cries of millions of people, God, please come and save us. Unlike the judges of Israel, Jesus is actually God clothed in flesh. In the days of the judges, God sent human people to deliver his people, but now in the days of Jesus, he himself took on flesh and Jesus has become our deliverance. And unlike the judges of Israel, Jesus Christ came not only to deliver us from enemies that are outside of us, but mainly from enemies that are inside of us, Namely, this heart here that causes me to go astray, that causes me to be subject to powers that are too great for me. Israel's main problem, beloved, was not Kushan of double evil, as ominous as his name sounds. Their main problem was not the big, fat, powerful king, Eglon of Moab. Their problem was not the Philistines, who were powerful in their land for a long time. Israel's main problem was their hearts. Israel's main problem was the corruption inside that caused them to walk away from the Lord. And so Jesus came, beloved, to capture and cleanse our hearts. This sets him aside from every other judge of Israel. He came to live a perfectly righteous life and then to die a horrible death on the cross so that anyone who would look to him and believe in him would have their sins forgiven and they would be cleansed by him forever They would be delivered by him forever. They would be escorted into God's rest by him forever and ever and ever. Jesus came to heal the disease, not to treat the symptoms as the other judges did. And unlike the judges of Israel, Jesus didn't just come to deliver Israel, but he came to be the ultimate judge and savior of the entire world. Jesus came so that some people from every tribe and tongue and nation would be delivered and set free and come into communion with God forever and ever and ever. Jesus came to set some of us free from all over the planet, from our enemies, foreign and domestic. He came to gather us into one people and create in us a people who would worship him with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength so that God would be our God and we would be his people. And in fact, the truth of these things is even more profound than this because the Bible teaches us not only that Jesus brings us rest, but the Bible teaches us that Jesus himself is our rest. I'm not gonna look there with you now, but you'll see this in Hebrews chapter four. Jesus Christ himself is the communion that we have with God. To know Jesus is to know God. To walk with Jesus is to walk with God. To worship Jesus is to worship God. To be one with Jesus is to be one with God. Beloved, I pray that you'll have eyes to see that Jesus came in fulfillment of the book of Judges to set us free indeed. And all we have to do to taste the eternal freedom that he has provided for us is to turn to him and believe in him and follow him by his power all the days of our lives. The Bible says something very simple. Anybody on the planet could do it. It says that whoever calls upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ will be saved. And so I urge you to do that today. You know, that's how Charles Spurgeon got saved. He sat in this little tiny church, 15 people at church that morning. The pastor preaches from Isaiah with all of his heart and he says a very simple message. And actually, he called Spurgeon out from everybody else. He said, you young man, this message is for you. It's a simple message. Believe in God and you'll be saved. Spurgeon believed and explains the rest of his life. It's that simple for all of us. And so I urge you today to call upon the name of Jesus Christ and be saved. Call upon the name of Jesus Christ and finally be freed from your traps. I promise you that your ways will not get you out of the results of your ways insanity is doing the same things over and over again and expecting different results. The only way that you're going to be free, eternally free, really free, is to look to Jesus and believe in Jesus and follow Jesus. Now, I'm not going to stand here and lie to you and tell you that if you believe in Christ, your life's going to become instantly easy and everything's going to be fine and good. You're going to suffer. And in some ways, your life will get harder. But it will be good. And your life will be heading in the right right direction and you will have peace with God. And slowly but surely, day by day by day, as you follow Jesus and do life with his people, you will overcome and you will know his joy. And when you come to the end of your life, you're going to hear these amazing words from God. Enter into the joy of your master. Come, my son. Come, my daughter. Be with me forever and ever and ever. I promise you, sometimes life in Christ is hard. But there is a joy in Christ that this world does not know and this world cannot take away. If you have the joy of Christ, you could lose everything else and essentially lose nothing. And so I want to conclude today by urging you again to call upon the name of the Lord. And I want to bring before you a saying that I've brought to this church many times over the last year and a half because it just seems so appropriate. Here's a good takeaway thing to think about. Herein lies the key to life. Cease to strive and rest in Christ. You will never find rest unless you rest in Christ. You will never find freedom unless you rest in Christ. And so again, I urge you, look to him, believe in him, cling to him, follow him, trust him, let him deliver you. Herein lies the key to life. Cease to strive, rest in Christ. Let's pray. Father, I don't know how to express the depth of what I feel in my heart for you. I'm so grateful for your character. I'm so grateful for your holiness that will not compromise our sin and justify it and sweep it under the rug. I'm so moved by your compassion to give your law to your people, to let them know exactly what pleases you and what does not please you. And for those who never heard the law of God, the Bible says that you wrote that law on our hearts. We know what's right and wrong. I thank you for being clear with us, and I thank you, Father, that when we sin and turn away from you, you are compassionate. I thank you for these life-giving words, that I am the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And I thank you that no matter how many times your people fall, you will never break your covenant. I thank you that our hope is in you and not in us. And I pray that you would give every single person in this room and every single person hearing this message over the internet, I pray that you would give us the power to surrender our lives to Christ by whom we can be free, by whom we can enter into your rest. Lord, please make it happen in real life. We don't just want to talk about these things, Lord. We want to experience your power and your peace. So come now, I pray, and do your work among us. We love you, and we rise to sing to you the great and gracious God. Amen.